Well, good morning. I am not Chris, obviously. So here's what's going on, just to give you a quick overview. Uh, Chris and the rest of the clergy are in Camp Allen uh, with the rest of the clergy of the Diocese of Dallas. Um, it's a clergy conference. I'm here because I'm leaving tomorrow to go to Amistad in Bolivia, and I said, told the bishop that I will be gone for 10 days, and adding another three days is not possible um, for the stability of my marriage. Um, <laughs> so I am, I am glad to be with y'all today and with my family as well, and then uh, we'll make it all, it all works out here. So I'm glad to be especially here teaching. Um, let's begin with a quick word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Be present, be present, Lord Christ, our great high priest, as we listen again to your word, as we seek to understand the movement of your spirit, as we try desperately to understand God's plan. Move powerfully among us, Lord. Open our eyes to the many ways you are working here and now, just as you did there and then. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So Chris said, teach chapter 22 of Luke. That, okay. Um, and then really didn't give me much more than that. And he said, ah, we talked about 21 last week. So uh, that was, that's pretty much my, my information. So I'm just going to teach you what I can teach you. Um, so here's the one thing that I can start off and say is uh, growing up, I was, I'm not a particular person now. And I wasn't when, when I was a kid. But there was one thing that always really bugged me in the world. I hated it when my food touched. And I should be clear about that. I, I really didn't like it. Like when you would go to a barbecue and they'd give you the hot dog and then they'd give you the scoop of beans and suddenly you'd have a soggy bun because the, the bean juice sort of got into your hot dog bun. That was the part that was not, a, I was not a fan of all that kind of stuff. So I was the kid that usually had the divided tray. That was my favorite invention in the world. Um, so you can imagine my horror when I uh, had kids and my wife one day came home with baby food that said uh, Thanksgiving dinner and it was turkey and it was just like this khaki paste, you know, that was supposedly like turkey dressing, green beans and cranberry. And you're like, oh, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, believe it or not, that is what we have done with our understanding of the Gospels a lot of time. We've hit frappe, and especially where we've hit frappe is in chapter 22 of Luke, also known as the Last Supper, and um, Gethsemane, and then going into Good Friday. We've hit frappe and just sort of combined them all. And when we've done that, it's not a bad thing necessarily. There are things that, especially when we're teaching newcomers of the faith, that helps people understand. But I, we're probably not newcomers in this room to the faith. We need to go back and look at how these stories are written differently because they really are written differently by different people for different audiences with a different set of ideas in mind for each of the four Gospels. Um, and it's especially apparent. It's not always apparent in some of the other stories, but this is where it becomes critical to, see, to look at these very much independently. Luke is saying something. Matthew is saying something. Mark is saying something, John is saying something, and they're totally different. They're telling the same story about how Jesus died for us and was risen, but there's lots of nuance to those stories, things that are different 
Um, the classic would be Gethsemane. That's what everyone likes to, is, shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray, which is Greek for olive press. So he was in probably an olive grove at a place where they press the olives to make olive oil. Okay, that's fine. The only time the word garden appears is in the Gospel of John, and he never uses the word Gethsemane. He only calls it the garden. He goes apart to the garden to pray. But as Christians, I would bet you've all heard the same thing and said the same thing, and I've said it even. They went to the garden of Gethsemane, and we just sort of hit frappe and combine those. But they have different ideas for what each of those mean, okay? Luke today is a classic in the, in the 22nd chapter. Um, it begins very basically, and you can just divide the chapter into two parts, really. It's the first half is the Last Supper, and then the second half of the text is, um, well, Gethsemane, and the betrayal, really. It's sort of a one-two punch. The entire chapter is, can be divided into those two parts. That's fine. Um, but, again, this is where we get into some of the nuance. It begins very basically, it was the feast of the Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, um, which all four Gospels are in accordance that that was the time of year it was. They change a little bit on the timing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the Last Supper very much as that Seder meal, that Passover meal. Um, where Jews gathered and recalled the story of how God saved them from slavery. I'll, I'll give you the two-second tour of the Passover. That's that moment where they sacrifice the lamb, they kill the lamb, spread his blood on the lentils of the door, and then the angel of death passes over those houses and kills the firstborn in all Egypt. That is the night of the Passover that they celebrate in Judaism still. Um, and it, we have lots of ties to that. You should, as a Christian, your ears should perk up because after all, after a lot of our, um, in the midst of our celebration of Eucharist, we say, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us, right? We say it often enough in our prayers. We should hear those echoes of Passover and our Last Supper, right? They're, they're, connected in ways that are not fully clear, but they're definitely connected, okay? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very clear that this is what Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. They're all there together. They're all there doing that. But before we get to the Last Supper in Luke, and this is where Luke messes with things a little bit, and actually they all mess with things. Let me say it differently. Luke focuses very clearly on some things. The beginning, just before that chapter, the very first kind of verses, um, if you're looking at it, it is um, 1 through 6. That, this chapter begins a little bit broadly, so it says, Now the festi festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, he was one of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple police about how he might betray him, Jesus, of course, to them. And they were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So he consented, Judas consented, of course, and began to look for an opportunity to betray him to them. 
when no crowd was present. All right. This is the first time Satan has appeared in the text since, does anybody remember the last time? The temptation. The three temptation, which was in Luke 4. All right. Here is one of those things that Luke is very, very clear about, but because we hit frappe, we don't pay attention to. Um, If you go to Luke, um, and let me see if I can find it. Uh, So it's Luke chapter 4, and then... Jesus is tempted, the devil has finished every test, so it's Luke 4, 13, I should have known it was 13, that's a good lucky number, that's the last time Satan shows up in the text, Luke 4, 13, but this is the key, so Jesus has been tempted three times, he has overcome those three temptations, and here's where it comes, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke is very clear that this is the opportune time. What is the last temptation of Christ? There's the movie, which is a very different thing, and the book by Nikos Kazantzakis, which is a brilliant book. I highly recommend it. But this, in the Gospel of Luke, is making a very clear theological statement. Satan is shown back up to tempt Jesus. What is the ultimate last temptation of Jesus? He doesn't have to die. At least that's the final temptation. Satan enters into Judas and begins to set into motion this sacrifice that Jesus will make. And in a moment when we see him literally sweating blood, praying about this difficult time, it is his last temptation. Will Jesus go through with this or not? This is not in any of the other Gospels. It is only in Luke. But Luke's making a pretty profound statement that Jesus didn't just sort of walk into this willy-nilly and it wasn't easy for him. Which is sometimes the way if you watch certain you know king of kings and certain of those um movie versions of this or even if you hear preachers talk about it sometimes they'll go jesus went willingly to the cross well he did go willingly but it obviously wasn't easy for him do you see how that there's a very clear theological difference there that luke is making that we should be attentive to because it's not just jesus said okay i'll die that's fine it's Satan enters into Judas, and here comes the last temptation, which is the, how this narrative will then unfold, with Judas showing up, Judas pushing Jesus to maybe try something different or giving him options for ways out, and Jesus constantly saying, no, this is why I've come. All right, so then after we have this moment, which we should, again, here all connected, they go and prepare for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we have this sort of fun, mystical part of the story next, really, where Jesus uh, tells his disciples, hey, it's time to have the feast. You guys go into town and find a good place to have dinner. And it's sort of funny because it's pretty much follow this guy with a water bucket and then ask him for if there's a place for dinner. I mean, it's this really sort of weird, kooky um, moment that theologians will sort of talk about and say, well, what does that mean that he's following a guy with water? And someone will go, oh, he's a, it's about baptism. Oh, it's about this. And some people just go, it's just a weird story about how he followed a guy with water and sort of prophetic powers of Jesus. I don't have an answer. I don't know if there is a good answer. But the idea still is the same. It, it's sort of like, and this is, I mean, this is a silly little joke, but it's sort of the moment where Jesus 
sent them into the city and said, find, a, find me a table for dinner. I need a setting for 26. And they said, Jesus, there's only 13 of us. And he goes, yeah, but we're only going to sit on one side. Um, uh, da Vinci and a little, little art humor, sorry. Um, now, what we can say, though, is it's not what we have in our heads. Thanks to that beautiful painting by Da Vinci, we have this idea that they're all gathered around the table. We're used to gathering around tables. That's not how they ate in the ancient world. In fact, if you read it, they are very clear, they recline at table. So really what it was was a whole bunch of low benches or what we would call couches, and Jesus literally laying out, laying down, with all the disciples laying down as well. It's, it's sort of hard to wrap our heads. I've never actually seen an artist truly depict what's described in the text, which is they're all just sort of laying around on couches, eating um, you, you might have seen those images more for like the Romans. That, that was the era that they lived in. That was what they did. They reclined on couches. It was the sign of uh, power. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of uh, freedom that you could recline at table and take your time and have a three-hour dinner. Um, now, here's a couple of things. I can't tell you a whole lot about the Passover. I've been to Seder's. I don't know all the theology of Seder's. But what I can tell you, having done this, actually, raise your hand if you've ever been to a Seder of any, of any sort. Okay, handful of folks. They're wonderful meals, but um, it involves five ritual cups of wine. Five. And you're supposed to finish all five. So when the disciples sort of get, you know, we look down on them for falling asleep with Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I have five glasses of red wine, and then Jesus says, hey, stay with me and pray a while, I don't know that I could do that. <laughs> it's not an easy sort of process. The, the Passover Seder, though, is very clear. It recalls the story of Israel's moment that Jesus, I mean, of God coming in, interrupting history, the ten plagues, the whole, it's the width and breadth of how Israel was freed from slavery and bondage and brought into freedom by God. And they, were, of course, were Death was passed over them by that sacrifice of the lamb, right? That's the broad story, and it is a story that they then enact regularly. Now, with the Last Supper, we have created our liturgy as we know it as Episcopalians, right? We have reading of the word, some teaching, some prayers, then we have bread and wine. If you've ever been to a Jewish um, not just a Seder, but just to their Friday night service, a Shabbat service, you would know that they have readings, a sermon, prayers, and then bread and wine. Um, that tends to surprise some folks who aren't Jewish, but we pretty much ripped off the whole service. <laughs> um, and the great prayer they have is Baruch Atar Anai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri HaGefen, which is, blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, the one who brings wine from the vine. Okay, and then the, the other one is uh, which is one who brings bread from the earth. So the great prayer is thank you God for giving us this bread and wine that we will then share in memory of the wonderful process of freeing us as slaves and giving us freedom as your people. That's, their, that's the broad theology. 
I can't give you a whole lot of details because I'm not a rabbi, but that's the broad theology of the Passover that Jesus comes together to celebrate. We have to name that, at least in part, because then Jesus comes in and starts to change it or to live into it. And that's the great theological question of the church that we've been wrestling with for 2,000 years ever since, is Jesus is absolutely, according to Luke, according to everyone, living into that service, and then while he's at that Seder meal and he's saying those words, he then adds a few of his own, the words of institution as we call them, where he institutes the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, communion. And we have to wonder exactly what he's doing. I don't think we wrestle with that enough as Christians. That's, that's where I think we have some work to do. Um, so, when we look at it, um, the le- unleavened comes, they go and they prepare the meal. And then as he gets in the room, uh, he uses those words of institution, do this in remembrance of me, right? Now, again, this is, this is Luke. So last week y'all talked with Chris, I know, because if you talked about 21, you talked about all those words, all, all those predictions about the end of time, right? I mean, it was the eschaton or eschatology. It's the things revealed at the end of days, all that kind of stuff. So we shouldn't be surprised that in this version, in Luke, but not in Matthew, Mark, and John, in Luke, as Jesus is talking, it's not purely do this in remembrance of me. He also says, I will not eat again of this bread until the coming of the kingdom. I will not drink of this wine until the coming of the kingdom. So Jesus is absolutely, Luke and Jesus in this gospel are very concerned about the end of days and about how this process of the Last Supper is something we do waiting for Jesus to come back and then share bread and wine with us at the end, which is a little different than how Matthew, Mark, and John look at it. Um, John, for instance, has shifted the Last Supper from, well, he shifted it by a day. It's not the day of the Last Supper. I mean, it's not the day of Passover. It's the day before the Passover. And what John does in changing the time is he wants it very, very clear that when Jesus dies on the cross, it is at the same time they are sacrificing the Passover lambs in the temple. He's making a theological statement in the Gospel of John about this is our Lamb of God who is sacrificed for us, things we say every Sunday. Hallelujah, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us, our Pesach, our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us. That comes straight out of John because it's at the exact same time as the sacrifice of the Passover lambs. So John is much more concerned at that Passover meal to make sure that Jesus is understood as literally the Passover lamb who is sacrificed at the same hour, at the same time. Um, And then the great moment um, happens where in the Gospel of John, the soldier takes a branch of hyssop and dips, uh, puts a, a piece of sponge on it, dips it into wine and hands it up to him, right? And gives him wine on the cross. It's sort of darkly humorous. Does anybody know what hyssop is? No. Hyssop is a bush. 
It's, it's like a vine. You can't stick it and put, it, put anything up to it. Hyssop is actually where Moses is given the command, take a branch of hyssop and smear the blood over the doorways. It's a branch. And so John makes it unbelievably apparent that this is when Jesus is dying, that it's the Lamb of God, take this branch of hyssop, the one that you smeared the doorposts with back in the day, and instead has it this moment where they're trying to give him wine. And they're making direct parallels to this is the blood of the lamb, this is the Passover lamb, this is sacrificed for us, right? So that's how John handles it. Luke, again, is much more concerned with, I won't eat this bread and wine with you again until those end of days that I talked about just in the chapter before. I'm very, John is, I mean, Luke, (laughs) let me slow down. Luke is very concerned about making those connections and saying, this is absolutely the last time Jesus will be with his disciples. This is absolutely that last moment when he will be with this group until he comes again. And if you're reading Luke 21, that should be pretty soon, so you better do this quick, right? I mean, there wasn't this idea for most of those folks that it would be 2,000 years later. They thought it was going to be next week or next month. Um, So Luke's teaching has a different nuance. They're ultimately the same. Christ's Last Supper is the same because those words of institution are there. His desire to celebrate this with his disciples are there that same phrase is there. Now we need to take a minute and look at that phrase. Do this in remembrance of me. Not necessarily, I mean, we can look at it in the book, but it's really just to talk about it where it is. Um, I would argue, and I did argue, I wrote my thesis on this, so I can say that I did argue. (laughs) Um, But I would argue very clearly that this is probably one of the most understood commands Jesus gives in the entire New Testament. And let me be clear about why that is. Jesus absolutely is saying, well, he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is a demonstrative pronoun with an indefinite antecedent, if you're getting into the English of it. That is, what the heck is this? Do this in remembrance of me. That's what the church, I think, has been trying to do, but not been clear about what this is. Here's how the church has historically taken care of it. We've said, oh, then we'll have bread and wine. And we will remind ourselves that Jesus had bread and wine with his disciples. And the community gathers should have bread and wine. Right? That's pretty much what our plan has been. Then fast forward a thousand years or so, and the Catholic Church, and Catholic Church, it was the only church, but the, what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, begins to talk about how this really refers to the body and blood of Christ, the literal body and blood, and what we call transubstantiation. They begin to teach that it's literally God's body and blood present there in the bread and wine, and that we uh, maybe sacrifice Jesus again, that this becomes this idea that we sacrifice Jesus over and over again. That becomes the medieval theology of the church. Not official, but it was the accepted idea by the rank and file. As a member of the church, you would probably of all, if if this were 1200 or so AD, you would all say, we are sacrificing Jesus again and again. And this body, when we say do this, it's that we are once again sacrificing Jesus and we are then once again eating his body and blood, remembering that sacrifice. Okay? 
Questions about that? That's the first step in this. It gets interesting, trust me. Now, keep in mind, this was also all in Latin in a world where no one spoke Latin anymore. It was a dead language, so no one had a clue what was said. So they would ring a bell. That's why we have sanctus bells. They would ring a bell because you had no idea what was going on, but they would ring a bell to go, hey, pay attention, we're going to do this part now. And does anybody know what that is in Latin? Hoc est, poc est. Hocus pocus. <laughs> this is where hocus pocus came from. They would ring the bell and say, hoc est, poc est. Do this in remembrance of me, or this is my body. And when they would say that, poof, it would become, go from bread and wine into body and blood, so it was magic. So that's how magic was understood in the ancient world. That's why still, when you read Harry Potter, all the spells are in Latin. It's because of the church. Because of the church. Expelliarmus and all those kinds of things that happen in Harry Potter. All of those kinds of things are because the church spoke Latin and they declared that this bread and wine became body and blood by just saying a handful of Latin words over it. All right? Sidetrack, but it's a fun one. So, they would do all of that. Then... Um, Martin Luther and a group of folks started coming forward and said, this is sort of crazy. Why are we killing Jesus every week? That doesn't seem to be what he wanted us to do. It was not, please kill me again every week. It was, I'm gathered with my friends. We're eating a meal together. So shouldn't it just be a meal together instead? And so the pendulum swung, depending on where you were on it. It went from absolutely we were sacrificing Christ to do all the way on the far side was this idea that it was just a memorial. We were just doing this purely in remembrance. It was not a reenactment, it was just in remembrance. We were doing a, we were recalling that this happened once upon a time, but we weren't reenacting anything, okay? And that was when they went, when they got all the way out on that side, they said it's still just bread and wine and there's nothing else happening. In the middle, more in the middle, were Calvinists, who started saying, well, but we believe in a real presence. And the Lutherans as well started getting into this. They said, we believe there is a presence of God somehow in this, but the elements don't change. The bread and wine is still the bread and wine. Okay? This is why we have that little fancy candle in the top corner, and underneath it is bread and wine. Can y'all, if y'all can see that. That's called um, the ombre. Uh, and we put blessed bread and wine in there, and there's a candle to represent that God is present in this space somehow, maybe in that bread and wine, or maybe just here, period. But we specifically do it over the bread and wine because that's what has been blessed, and we have called God's presence into or around. So technically, whenever you come in and uh, curtsy or genuflect, you are not genuflecting to the altar, you're genuflecting to the presence of God. Okay, now, all that said, if you came in and you're genuflecting to the cross, that's fine. It's not, <laughs> theology is not broken. All is well, but this is a, the official sort of idea of what's going on. Now, here's the thing. So the Catholics are over here, transubstantiation. The memorialists um, were over here, a.k.a. Baptists. And Anabaptists and all that group. And then in the middle were Lutherans and Calvinists. And you might be saying to yourself, where were the Episcopalians? Well, we were being Episcopalians and saying, uh, I don't know if any of that makes sense. So let's come up with something new. Um, and Richard Hooker um, and, uh, was looking at the writings of Cranmer, who wrote the prayer book, the first two prayer books, and said, you know, 
God does not care what happens to the bread and wine on the table. That is not something that God, Jesus ever says anything about like, oh, here's what the bread does or here's what the wine does. Instead, he has an understanding about do this, the, the verb do. Hooker's argument was what matters is not the elements on the table, but the heart of the believer. God's far more concerned how we are changed than whether or not bread and wine changed into something new or if it was a memorial or if it was anything else. So the official position of the Episcopal Church got to be labeled, or the Anglican Church at the time, was labeled receptionist because it was just how do we receive the elements was what happened, what was mattered the most. It was how God relates to us as Christians. Okay? That's our, still our official theology. If you've been taught that it was transubstantiation or consubstantiation which is the middle or a memorialist it's not officially right but it doesn't really matter either because again hooker was not concerned about the bread and wine he was concerned about how we are changed he believed that was where god had his greatest concern was whether or not we lived a converted life and how god reached into our hearts and changed us so i think hooker got closer to right but i'm still not sure if it's this if that's what this is. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I'm not sure we're paying attention. And what I mean by that is, we're still concerned in a lot of those instances. I think we're closer as Episcopalians on the path than many, but most of the time we've been, um, if we're, it's sort of like if we all had a dinner party and we invited all sorts of folks over and all anybody talked about was the entree. That's sort of what we've been doing, right? We've been worried about the grocery list and what's happening with the entree. I think Jesus was more concerned with the guest list. All right? That's my argument and my thesis anyway, but I would argue it seems to be true. That's what Jesus is always focused on. Who is brought into that conversation? Who's brought, into, who's brought around the table when Jesus does this? So who is around the table when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me? It's not, it's not a rhetorical question. Who is it? The followers, the disciples. But who specifically? The body of Christ. The body of Christ but n- names of people here. Just any of them. Peter. Peter. What does Peter do? Denies him. Who else is there? Judas. Judas. What does he do? And guess what? every recording we have of the early church, all four Gospels, Paul, James, all of them, say Jesus knew they were going to do that. Sitting at table with this group of folks, he knew they would deny him, betray him, and abandon him. And yet he still chose to have dinner with them. I don't know about you, but that's the last group of people. If that's my last meal, that's not who I'm inviting over for dinner. (laughs) Not even ballpark. If we pay attention to the story that Judas is there, Peter is there, the, the 12 as a whole are there, the followers of Christ, but let's be honest, the ones who are about to sin against him and sin against him greatly are all there, and he's still saying, do this in remembrance of me, I would argue that this is, that this is a, that at its heart, the Lord's Supper is a instrument of reconciliation. It's an invitation to forgiveness. It's an invitation to love 
in the midst of a very difficult situation. Said differently, the classic thing that that churches do when they disagree, what's the first thing we tend to do when we disagree as Christians? We break up, we split up. We literally excommunicate each other and say, I'm not going to have any more bread and wine with you. First Baptist is now going to be Second Baptist. (laughs) Right? Or the Episcopalians are now going to be the Anglicans. Or the Roman Catholics are now going to be Episcopalians. We're We're a breakaway after all in our own right. We tend to break communion. That's the first thing we do. But it seems to me do this in remembrance of me if we're going to be honest about what this is what the example Jesus gives us instead of breaking communion the first thing we the first thing we should probably do is okay let's have some bread and wine and talk about this and recall Christ's presence among us even if we disagree about 20 other things if Jesus can have meal can break bread and drink wine with someone who is going to kill him, then I'm pretty sure we could probably have, a disag- have some bread and wine with somebody who you know, decides that the color for um, Advent should be blue while well, I think it should be purple, right? I mean, I, I could probably make that work. This is on one level the theology of the church, but on another level it's scripture. This is not... We, again, we can fight about all kinds of weird things around the edges because I would argue this is the hardest part of the teaching of what the Last Supper could be. This is hard stuff, man. To think that Christ wants the Last Supper not to be an image of division but of unity, that's actually pretty scary. That's, that's hard work because it means whenever we've got a disagreement with someone, and we all have those fights, with family, with friends, with anybody we know, do this in remembrance of me may not be have an official prayer service. It may be invite your neighbor that you're fighting with to lunch and go, can we settle this somehow? Can we find a way to move forward somewhere in the midst of this disagreement? I mean, in the Gospel of John, he washes their feet for the love of Pete. I mean, this is an absolute image of humility in the midst of it. Now, here's where Luke makes sure we don't miss that. He has the regular portion where it do this in remembrance of me. But if you turn over just a little bit, after he's talked about Simon, you're going to betray me, Judas, you're going to betray me, all those kinds of things. They begin to argue, and this is so like the disciples, um, on 24, Luke 22, 24. I'll read it to you real fast. A dispute also arose among them. So basically, Jesus had just said, one of you betray me. And they're like, it can't be me. I didn't do it. Is it you? I, did, I wouldn't do that. So they're having this argument, and then somehow that morphs into an argument about a dispute among them arose as to which one of them would be the greatest. Well, I wouldn't betray him, but I'm the best. <laughs> a, little, a little ego <laughs> never hurt the disciples, huh? This also might be where we can read into the fact that they've had five glasses of wine, and that might be a, a logical progression in argument. 
I, I don't, maybe, I don't know. They're, they're, it seems sort of kooky, but it happens. And so he said to them that they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader, like one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among, among you as one who serves. Luke, this is only in Luke. Now that story shows up in Matthew and Mark, but it's in very different places. Luke puts it here, right next to this declaration where Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me. They start arguing because Jesus goes, one of you betrayed me. And they're like, not me, but I'm the best. Then he says, no, no, no. The best is the one who loves and serves and is, not will, is willing to be humble even as you try to, so people are trying to do horrible things to you. That is the ideal Christian. That is the ideal follower of the Christ. Is one who is, even in the midst of the hardest stuff in the world, is, is right here willing to serve. If we understand that idea, do this in remembrance of me, that this is our call to be reconciling forces in the world, loving forces in the world, even as we are tempted to declare ourselves the greatest, that instead the greatest is the one who's willing to sit down and have that meal. It's a very different view, isn't it? Than what we tend to think, if we've even thought about it in these terms. A lot of times we don't even think about it in these terms. It's also a reminder of just what's going on with this temptation. Now we are starting to see how the temptation is there for Jesus. It's starting to be delineated. Judas is Satan has entered into him. Satan is looking for that opportune time, and here he is going to betray him to death, and Jesus is rejecting that temptation. Because let's be honest, the temptation for any of us in that moment, if I know someone's going to betray me, is go, let's get that guy. <laughs> Kick that guy out, because Jesus could have done that. Let's be honest, there could be an alternative history where Jesus goes, Judas is the guy, kill him. But instead, he says, let me for you let me serve you let me eat with you we start to see and this is how Luke teaches Luke always puts up that dichotomy here's the bad guy here's the good guy he tries to make it really really apparent Judas is the bad guy in the room and Jesus is clearly the good guy giving us the alternative let me pause there before we jump into the next questions because that's I've thrown a lot at you really really fast some deep end theology. Observation. observation. So yes, so she said the, you know, her question observation is one uh, that Judas betrays him with a kiss. This is sort of that class, um, it's obviously historical because all the gospels refer to this moment where Judas comes up and kiss, kisses Jesus even though he has betrayed him and it's that sort of dark, um, darkly ironic moment of a kiss obviously is something we're supposed to do to love and care for someone, but really in this moment it's the deepest, deepest level of betrayal. Um, and so what is in that? It's just that. Like Jesus is talking about how do you love and serve and seek to reconcile, and then he's ultimately betrayed by a perversion of that love. So that's absolutely part of that. Um, and then as far as Judas, yeah, I mean the, the other part she said was, you know, there had to be a Judas for there to be a Good Friday. Yeah, 
You're dead. There had to be someone willing to make or, or to allow that temptation to happen and to betray him because otherwise he wouldn't have gone to the cross, most likely. Um, scholars, theologians, preachers, teachers, lay folks have all wrestled with that for centuries. Um, if, uh, if you watch... If you, if you watch Jesus Christ Superstar during the uh, um, Easter, uh, the live version they did on NBC, um, then there is a strand, an ancient strand in Christianity that Jesus knew because he asked him to do it. There is an ancient strand in Christianity that has that idea. Luke clearly does not have that idea because Satan enters into him and does it on his own. And those are sort of the two branches of Christianity. It's either absolutely Judas acted on his own and he was just a mean ornery character or Jesus was working with him and said I need someone who's exceptionally strong and willing to do this to go and betray me textually we don't have anything that supports Jesus telling him to go do it it's probably at least scripturally more likely that Judas was just a guy who got scared or convinced they were headed in the wrong direction and turned Jesus over thinking that maybe Jesus, it's hard to say what Judas was thinking, but it seems like he had this idea that they were just going to calm Jesus down, bring him back from his extremism, not to have him executed. But it's hard to say. I mean, that's, we're, we're reading back into all that. Um, but it's definitely that question that has troubled people like, well, wait, what if, what if Peter hadn't denied him? What if Judas hadn't betrayed him? It would be a different story at the least. Um, but we, you know, it's also that sort of what if you go down those rabbit trails. Other questions, thoughts? We'll, we'll keep going in a sec. Yes, ma'am. Right, right. I mean, at the least, it, so that happens in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus is absolutely God at every point. He is always in charge. There's a great moment in the Gospel of, to give you a good idea of how the Gospel of John works, um, there's a great moment where they come up and basically ask Jesus if, if he needs help to carry his cross, and he's like, I've got it myself. I am God. There's no Simon helping him carry the cross in John. It's the same in the Gospel of John with the episode with Judas, where he goes, go and do what you're going to do. He absolutely knows, and he sort of authorizes it so that Jesus is still in charge because he's God. In Luke's Gospel, he absolutely knows but there's not that moment where he literally tells him to go out. So it's a little different, but it's still there. It's still in our tradition that absolutely Jesus knew at the least, and then it's how far was there collusion or a sort of knowledge that pushed Judas into it. Now, um, I'm also gonna tell you another part. Does anybody, so after, uh, this has not happened in Luke, this happens in John, but in John, there's that moment where Jesus dips the wine, dips the bread into the wine and gives it to Judas. And then Judas decides that it's time to go and, G and he says, I'm just gonna go. And Jesus gets mad and says, yes, go and do what you're going to do, that moment. And he leaves while the rest of them stay and talk for a while longer. Because he leaves without saying thank you or without engaging with Jesus afterwards, if you come to communion and then dart out before you say the post-communion prayer, it's called the Judas Walk. That's the official name. That's the official name if you dart out early. 
It's called the Judas Walk. Don't worry. It's not really that, that awful. That's just the name that it's been given. Um, you're supposed to say and at least say thank you before you go out into the world. Um, but that's one of those classic things that the church has put in there. That's probably more of a priestly term. I bet lay folks are like, ah, oh, you're all horrified. Um, but that's one of those things that you notice that beeline to make sure you beat the Baptist to the uh, country club or whatever. But <laughs> it's officially called that. Um, so we have this, again, this is all that first part, that last supper. Do this in remembrance of me. My invitation to you um, as we turn to the, to the second half here real fast and look at the second half of the text, is when you hear those words again, see what, pray, see what's in your heart, what is God calling you into? If it is, and I would argue it is, if communion is ultimately a sacrament of reconciliation, one that's supposed to be knitting us back together so that we're not mad about a fight we had with anybody around us in the pews or lives near us or just people we've been frustrated with for years, See where God is leading you. Pray about that idea. Okay, I'll do this in remembrance, God, but what would this be? What do you want me to do? Um, It's a powerful way of viewing a very powerful sacrament, regardless. If it's understood more as reconciliation, I think it changes a lot of the way that we can then, as Christians, engage the world and might help us be, well, more Christ-like. A quick side note, one last point on that. Um, does anybody know, here's some Bible trivia for you, where the word antichrist shows up? Not, Revelation's the classic guess, but it's not in Revelations. It shows up three times, only three times in the entire New Testament does it show up. Antichrist only shows up three times, and it shows up all three times in the first and third letter of, the, of John. And the Antichrist, as that understanding of that early, in this first, second, third John were probably written around 100 AD, that first generation of the church. Does anybody know how he defines Antichrist? It's not this crazy serpent being Damien, omen kind of horrible person who comes into the world. The Antichrist, one who breaks communion. One who breaks communion is one who acts against the Christ. If you were in communion, then you are working with Christ. If you are breaking communion, you are anti-Christ. And that shows up in that text because in those verses um, in John, when they show up, uh, uh, the letter to John, they're very clearly saying that group left us and went and started their own things. They're the anti-Christ. It's gotten used in terms, thanks to movies, where it's Damien and watch out, here comes the exorcist and her head's spinning around and she's throwing up peas. But that's not it. The biblical definition is one who breaks communion. Oops. Oops. All right, so second half of the text is where Jesus goes to Gethsemane and where they take a time apart, they pray, and this is that great moment, of course, where he asks that they stay awake and pray with him. Now, in this one, in this particular um, version, uh, they, went to the, they went out and he reached a place. He said to them, pray that you may not come into the time of trial or into the time of 
temptation. It can be translated both ways. And the idea here is don't come into the time of testing, the time of trial, the time of temptation. So if Judas has entered, I mean, has had Satan enter into him, and now the temptation is very clearly in Gethsemane. That is where the last temptation of Christ happens because he knows Judas has gone out to betray me. You guys, as basically Jesus' instruction is, y'all pray that you don't have to deal with the temptation that I've got to go deal with, Let's, but I've got to go pray for this. All right, so there when he's praying um, on verse 41, 20, uh, Luke 22, 41, then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength, and in his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. This is clearly that last moment of temptation. Will he choose to just get out of it and live a human life, or will he become human sacrifice? Will he become one willing to die for us? And that is absolutely one of those moments that we should understand in Luke's telling as not a simple decision or an easy one, but an anguished, hard, and almost impossible one that Jesus enters into in prayer. So there's two things we don't understand it really. It's hard, but when we have a really hard decision, what are we called to do if we're the followers of Christ? Pray. And pray about it until you can't hardly stand anymore. That's the instruction clearly from Luke. Luke is often called the gospel of prayer because it's literally the gospel where they can't find Jesus and he keeps showing up and they go, anybody seen Jesus? And every time they go, oh, I think he's praying. I mean, (laughs) for some reason, the disciples could never establish or figure out that pattern. They're always like, and they looked for him and then they found him apart in prayer. Guys, maybe the third or fourth time you should have figured that out. But they, they always seem to have this hard time figuring out that that's what Christ does he goes apart to pray, to wrestle with those big decisions. This is how the text by Luke is written. Now in the Gospel of John, he's God. He doesn't really spend any time in prayer because he's God. He knows what's going to happen. He's ready to go. So the prayer in God is, is much more simplistic in John. But in Luke, you have this true anguish because he's truly doing spiritual warfare in Luke. Satan is entered into his friend. He's being betrayed. He's being denied. They're breaking communion with him, even though he's trying to reach out in love and reconciliation to them. And so he is sweating it out in the harshest sense possible. Um, Then, of course, after that, get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. That's how he ends Gethsemane. It starts, pray that you don't get caught up in this time of trial. And at the end, Pray that you don't get caught up in the time of trial. Pray that you don't have to do what I've got to do, guys. <laughs> that this, you don't end up in a situation as harried as I've got. It's also in Luke that we have that prayer from our Lord, lead us not into temptation. It's the same word, lead us not into the time of trial. It's the one that then, um, God bless old Francis said, maybe we should say instead of, God, don't lead us into trial, but don't let us be led into trial. Um, Because 
Francis rightfully said, do we really believe that God's the one who tests us or isn't it some other forces or we get ourselves into hairy spots and we're testing ourselves? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So... Right, in that light. Um, it seems to be because Jesus is very aware that he is being tested throughout his ministry. And he's praying that we don't have to deal with what he's dealing with on a regular basis. Pray that you don't have to deal with making a choice about sacrificing yourself for the good of others. Mm -hmm. Right. So part of... There is gray there. There is that sort of gray. Uh, for those who couldn't hear, she was asking about... It, there's that gray like but if it's lead us not to temptation then isn't God that sort of part of the prayer we're blaming it on God um, and to a certain degree it is but then that's where we mistranslate the next section lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil there's two ways you can translate that you can translate it deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one and I think if you hear this sort of context of Satan's absolutely the one testing Jesus over and over again, and he's saying that prayer, then maybe he meant more of deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us, like lead us not into temptation. Help us not to get stuck in this situation where we're being tempted. And if we do end up there, then help us get away from the bad guy who's causing the trouble in the first place. So how do I account for the choice of linguistics is the question. Uh, I don't believe Jesus or, or God or the Spirit lead us into a time of trial and tempting. I, I sure hope not. Um, but I do believe that God walks with us in the midst of it. It's praying for God's presence in the midst of that. So do, God, don't, it's, I understand it more as Francis would translate it. Help us not to get stuck in a situation where we're in being tempted. Help me to not, I mean, let's be honest. Let's, we can make it really simplistic. Uh, Susie Cakes is right around the corner. I can say, lead us not into temptation, but then intentionally walk by there every day, and I'm doing temptation just fine on my own. Lead us not into temptation is sometimes saying, God, help me order my life so that instead of walking by Susie Cakes, I take a left and go down and get payway. You know, I mean, that's sort of flippant and silly, but it's not dissimilar from that situation where we know the stuff that we're vulnerable to on a thousand different levels then God, help me not to put myself in that situation. Help me not to be in that spot. And if I do get in that spot, once again, I walk by, help me not to go in and buy a dozen cupcakes. You know, I mean, it's, it, I, I, so that's how I understand it, is that sort of account of linguistics, I guess you call it, is how, how do we understand it? It's understanding God as one who doesn't tempt, but who helps us as we can get ourselves in plenty of trouble on our own. Um, without Satan or anybody else getting us in trouble at all. Sometimes we just do it pretty easily without thinking about it. Um, so, uh, we got just a couple more minutes. The final portion of this is, um, that quick little section is Judas betraying with a kiss. Um, they strike out with a sword and cut off the ear. In the Gospel of John, Jesus does not heal the ear. In Luke, he does. Even in the midst of his betrayal, he is still one who reconciles. One of his disciples draws a sword, cuts off an ear. Jesus says, put away your sword. And then, again, in the truest sense of reconciliation and love, 
his last act of healing is healing someone who's been injured in the midst of someone trying to protect him. So if there's a constant we can put in, whether you buy it or not, if there's a constant that we can say throughout Jesus' last moments, it's that he is still preaching love and reconciliation to the last. And you'll see it with Chris next week as you look at the actual crucifixion in Luke. It is absolutely all the way through Jesus saying, it's okay. Even to the thief on the cross with him, you will be with me in paradise. There is still hope and reconciliation throughout. Okay. Um, I th- I'm going to stop there. That's a good place to stop. Um, so, my friends, I hope that helps uh, open your hearts a little to what Jesus is about um, when we talk about Good Friday. I got a very heavy topic. Maybe next time Chris can invite me to come and teach something more fun uh, or a little lighter and I can go, woo, Um, it's Easter. Yay, we can talk Easter. But it's been good to be with you, my friends. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.